Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In a recent opinion piece in the New York Times, authors Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith argue that the office of the president requires significant reforms. Using office for personal gain, refusing to release his tax reforms, President Trump's behavior during the past four years demonstrates the complexities of regulating presidential abuses and ethical breaches. Bauer and Goldsmith join us to talk about their proposals for reforms and which reforms can be enacted by the executive and congressional branches of the U.S. government. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. From calling his election loss a fraud to bullying the press, the four years of the Trump presidency have broken the mold of political and historical norms. According to law professors Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer, it's time for the country to reform the presidency to prevent future presidential abuses and ethical misconduct. And they lay out a plan to do just that in their new book, After Trump, Restructuring the Presidency. Bauer, a Democrat who served as White House counsel to President Obama, and Goldsmith, a Republican who served as Assistant Attorney General in the George W. Bush administration, offer a plan that they believe should enjoy bipartisan support. And they join us now to talk about what can be done to restore the checks and balances that govern the presidency. And let me welcome both Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith to the program. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Yeah, and let me congratulate you, by the way, to begin with. This book is nothing short of a legal tome, and it's a very detailed one and a thorough one. And I know you want to spark an informed debate about uh, whether and how reform of the presidency should proceed, and you do just that in the book. And there's a lot to cover. The book covers ethics. It covers war powers, pardon powers, treatment of the press, vacancies, and I'm not going to go on here. I'm going to begin, actually, if I may, with you, Professor Goldsmith, and both uh, our guests are law professors, Jack Goldsmith at Harvard and Bob Bauer at NYU. I'd like to begin, by, since you were a Republican and were part of a Republican administration, the Trump administration has set off a lot of the warning bells that you really write about in this book and concerns. I'd like to begin by talking about what you see as really the most urgent necessity as far as a guardrail that we've learned from the Trump presidency. Uh, thank you. It's hard to know where to begin. There are so many places, and there are two factors to consider. What is the most urgent and what is achievable? Um, and I think that it, if we were uh, maximizing those two vectors, the most urgent thing to do is to address the scores of problems that arose in the relationship between the White House and the Justice Department. Um, we have five chapters in the book on this, and there's a lot to say about it, but in general, Trump violated the norms of Justice Department independence uh, 
just in an incomprehensible way, norms that had worked pretty well for 50 years since Watergate. The confidence in Justice Department decision-making was destroyed. There are all sorts of problems there, and I think that's the most urgent place where reform needs to be addressed. And we will certainly talk about that. There's so much to talk about in your book. Uh, book. Breathtaking changes, as you say in the book, have occurred under the Trump administration, seeking to fire the special counsel, which goes right to the Justice Department, and uh, making money from business and really uh, attacking the press and all of that sort of thing. But Bob Bauer, let me go to you on this. All these holes in the system, uh, I mean, they're loopholes and they're suggesting very strongly the need for guardrails, as I've indicated. How didn't we notice this before Trump? We've seen uh, something similar, by no means the same, but you know, something similar during the Nixon administration when the, certainly the guardrails that existed were smashed through fairly dramatically. Uh, with the result, by the way, I might add that a number of lawyers going to Jack's point, a number of lawyers, the White House counsel, the attorney general, who might have been expected to uphold the rule of law in that administration actually went to jail and were involved in one way or the other in the Watergate scandal. And I think over time, uh, some of these guardrails have been worn. Uh, the Watergate example is the most dramatic one. But I think in other respects, uh, over time, as uh, presidents have uh, sought to expand their authority uh, and have done so for a variety of reasons, complicated reasons that we can discuss, uh, some of these restraints uh, have loosened and the obvious gaps where laws and norms really needed to control have become more apparent. And in our book, in each chapter, we try to give an historical background that explains how we've developed to the point where Donald Trump could behave in such a way that he really brought uh, all of those gaps and weaknesses very much to attention. And I think, therefore, in, in his way, uh, has become the reason why a reform program is relatively urgent. Well, you mentioned Nixon and Watergate, and not only Nixon and Watergate, but reforms that occurred after Vietnam and reforms with the Church Committee. You say those were really all inadequate. Uh, I mean, what Trump has made us realize is not only the inadequacy, but really the necessity for far more serious reforms and restructuring. Yes. I mean, I think some of those reforms did have bite. Uh, some of the post-Watergate reform activity, uh, Jack and I believe, uh, were effective. Uh, some were effective for a time, and then over time it became clear that whatever effectiveness they had uh, had begun to wear thin, or you know, perhaps some of the reforms were more sort of cosmetic than effective. But there were some meaningful reforms after Watergate. But we're in a different position now where we have to reevaluate what's necessary uh, to plug these holes and really have the presidency be a constitutionally accountable office. Powerful, strong, but still constitutionally accountable. Well, it's impressive uh, how both of you work in a bipartisan way. And I think uh, it's safe to say the only major disagreement comes to the question of what should be done in the way of prosecution or pardoning after Trump leaves office. And maybe we can take that up. Uh, I think uh, it's safe to say, uh, just to kind of crystallize this for listeners, because I know they'll want to weigh in on this, that uh, Professor Bauer thinks that one should have the rule of law primary. And uh, Professor uh, Goldsmith uh, seems to feel that uh, there's a slippery slope here and a danger in precedence. But let me also go to more of uh, historical background, because you bring up Hamilton and Federalist 70 and the accountability and checks on abuses of executive power. And you also 
bring us up to a more contemporary figure, Arthur Schlesinger, and all those constitutional presidency uh, notions that he had about a strong presidency, that you can have a system of accountability, and you can have a check on the abuses of power, executive power, and not necessarily stray from balance of power. And yet, many of your suggestions and recommendations have to do with really things that would emanate from Congress. Like to go to you on that, Professor Goldsmith? I mean, uh, Congress, sure. uh, can we still have the balance of power if Congress is uh, enacting the kind of legislation that you're talking about here? It, it, well, it's a, it's a great question, and it highlights several points. First of all, we focused in this book on reforming the presidency and, because that's our expertise, and we think that's where the central problem is, and we think that's where reform is most easily achievable. But you know, Congress is to blame for a lot of the problems in the presidency, for inadequate oversight, for not updating laws and the like. And, you know, we just we we accept that in the reforms we propose. Uh, it would be better if we had a different kind of Congress, and that's a whole different book we could write. But I do think this. A lot of the reforms we propose don't require congressional involvement, and they can be implemented by the executive. But many of them do require uh, congressional involvement. And yet we think that despite Congress's general fecklessness, we think there is bipartisan support uh, for some of the central proposals. And I'll give you two examples. One is there's been a consensus for at least 50 years that the president and presidential candidates should dis disclose taxes, to disclose their tax returns. And this is something that Republican and Democrat presidents alike did. There's a lot of support for this in the country. This has been governed by norms and not law. And this is something that Trump has abused because he's just abused it like no other president. And we think that's an area where there can be bipartisan consensus in Congress and where the Biden administration should support. And the same thing goes for the conflict of interest rules where Trump has really horribly mixed his business interests and the public interest. Again, that was governed by norms and not law. And it's something for which there was bipartisan support for 50 years. And we think that there can be, once again, bipartisan support to transfer that norm into law and to give it bite so that a president like Trump can no longer mix his public and business interests the way Trump did. Talking to the authors of After Trump, Restructuring the Presidency, Professors Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith. And uh, Bob Bauer, if I could go back to you, um, there is a sense uh, that I think you've pointed out about the importance of democratic norms to build on. And the likelihood that building on those norms can move toward really making the presidency more accountable and avoiding these kind of loopholes that we've discovered through the Trump administration or ways around. Um, but you've got 70 percent of the Republican Party and about 70 million voters who seem to, well, at least give the stamp of approval to President Trump. That's quite a constituency. We might read, and I think it's fair to read, um, the approval as arising from you know, other sources of agreement with you know, what they take to be President Trump's policy positions, disagreement with what they take to be uh, Democratic policy positions. But I suspect that if it were not a question of whether you liked or did not like Trump, in other words, if the question about the way that he was has conducted his presidency was presented uh, without it having to put the person answering the question in the position of either being for or against Trump, I think the answers would be different. Do I think that uh, 71 million voters don't believe that presidents should be subject to financial conflict of interest regulation? They shouldn't be using the government to promote their business? I suspect if you could answer that question and sever from it um, any suggestion that it was a for or against a Trump answer, I think they would support that kind of reform. Uh, and I think they would support some of the other reforms if, once again, 
uh, it was not simply a question of whether you were, they were being asked to attack a president that they might favor for other reasons. Well, we've also seen a lot of abuse recently with pardons, and uh, I think uh, Jack Goldsmith, if I'm quoting you correctly, you said you probably ain't seen nothing yet as far as more pardons to come. What can we do about pardon abuse? What should we be doing and looking at there? Well, this is a, a very difficult problem because the Constitution gives the president a very broad pardon power, and the Supreme Court has always construed this pardon power broadly. And past presidents have abused the pardon power, uh, and Trump has just taken it to extremes like we've never seen before. I mean, he's past presidents abused it in the exceptional case, and Trump does it as a matter of course. There are there are some some pardons you can't do anything about. If a pardon is you know, the president can pardon people for any reason that he wants, with a couple of exceptions, he can't pardon someone if it's in connection with an obstruction of justice or if it's in connection with a bribe. And some of the pardons in the last uh, week or so may have that flavor. Uh, and so we, but, but the law is unclear on that. And one of the things we propose, and this is an urgent matter, is that Congress make clear that when a president, you can't stop a president from pardoning someone in that situation, but you can make it a separate crime if he's doing so for a bribe or to obstruct justice. That would cut out the most serious abuses, and it would also, I think, give space and give it, put a chilling effect on even coming close to the most serious abuses. The other proposal that we make is to have Congress prohibit self-pardons. I think there's a very good chance that Trump is, he's, and when I say there ain't, you ain't seen nothing yet, I think he's going to pardon family members and many more people, and I think he will likely pardon himself. All right, I've got to break in here because we are coming up on a break. We're talking about Bauer and Jack Goldsmith about their book, After Trump, Restructuring the Presidency. If you want to weigh in here, we want to hear from you. You can join us now toll-free at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or join us on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. This is Forum. We're talking about how to reform the presidency in a post-Trump era with Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, co-authors of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. And what reforms do you think should be put in place to check the power of the presidency? Give us a call now and join the program at 866-733-6786. The number again for your calls toll-free is 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. And let me go back to you, Bob Bauer, and ask about something that came up uh, that was of great concern, and that was particularly because of the advice the president seemed to be getting from Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn about possible revision of the uh, Insurrection Act. And I'm talking, of course, about deploying troops to quell civic uh, unrest, which is still very much on people's minds. Uh, how we reform that? Where do you see it go? We do have specific proposals about uh, reforms of the Insurrection Act that was des designed to uh, limit uh, the 
president's ability to simply uh, carry on with that activity, be more accountable to the Congress, uh, engage the president more in a consultative relationship with state and local officials. There are ways we think of cabining that authority that I think would be very important to put to rest some concerns about abuse of the Insurrection Act. And so I think that is uh, an important part, along with and again, this is specifically, in the, it is a, an emergency power, but there's another category of emergency powers that we also address where we think uh, there are uh, congressional engagement, there is congressional engagement to, to be had and uh, more transparency that would, again, guard against some of the more significant abuses. And speaking of abuses, Jack Oldsmith, uh, I think you point out that um, uh, there, there certainly were abuses that were, to a great extent, uh, I think we could talk about maybe uh, uh, put it in a in a kind of cliche metaphor. Uh, Attorney General Barr carrying water for uh, Trump, particularly with Michael Flynn and Roger Stone. Uh, the the ability of the Attorney General to investigate opponents of the president, whether it's uh, former President Obama or whether it's President-elect Obama. I've certainly learned a lot of lessons in, in that. And uh, let's talk about what needs to be done and what ought to be done. Jack Goldsmith, can I go to you on that? Here, can you hear me? Yeah, no, I can. Go ahead, please. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we learned a lot of lessons. Barr did appear to be carrying water for the president in a lot of cases. It's not the first time an attorney general has been accused of that. It, it happens a lot. Barr was an extreme case. I think it's important to realize, first of all, that Barr didn't do a lot of the things the president wanted. He didn't uh, reveal the Hunter Biden investigation. He, the Durham investigation did not become uh, the public report before the election. He didn't prosecute his opponents. I'm not saying that Bill Barr was a virtuous person, but I think it's important to recognize he, the extent to which that the norms that we want to buck up actually did some work. They did some work in protecting uh, Special Counsel Mueller and allowing him to complete his work. So we propose a lot of things to ensure that the Justice Department can abuse this power. I'll just list several. One is we think it's important that Congress make clear that the President of the United States cannot, that it's a crime if he tries to obstruct justice in certain situations to protect himself or his family or to protect an election. Those are the most extreme cases. That would deter presidential abuse, and it would also deter abuse in the Justice Department. We think it's important that, that some of the norms in the Justice Department, which we do think work and can be made to work better, be clarified to ensure that there can't be uh, partisan prosecutions and investigations, to ensure that the Attorney General, uh, like every other person in the Justice Department, should not be able to, except in extreme circumstances, comment on ongoing investigations the way the bar did, uh, with regard to the Durham matter, um, and, and reforms like that, a lot of reforms to the special counsel to give the special counsel uh, protection in his fact-finding function so that the report, like the Mueller report, will have a better guarantee of coming out. So it's not there's not a single bullet approach. There's about 10 different things that need to be done, um, and those are the main ones. Well, as I've said, there's a lot really to grapple with in the book. Uh, we haven't even talked about emoluments and conflicts of... Uh, interest and, well, the role of foreign governments and all of that. Uh, we could spend an hour on almost each of these topics, but there are a lot of people who want to weigh in here, and I want to find out what's on listeners' minds and their thoughts and their questions. And let me begin, Joseph, with you. Joseph, join us. Morning. Joseph, are you there? Hello. Yes, uh, can you hear me? 
Yeah, we can now. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So I, my question is, or rather a comment, I really don't understand the details, but maybe one of the experts can uh, provide highlights. So why is this uh, presidential pardon there in the first place? Is it uh, not uh, treating everybody equal under the law? Like it's like, like an animal farm. So everybody is, every animal is equal. Some are more equal. Isn't that kind of situation being propagated by presidential pardon? Yeah, I think Bob Bauer, he wants to know whether we should uh, actually get rid of the presidential pardon. Your thoughts? The listener asked a very good question. Why do we have it? Uh, and the answer is that there are two fundamental grounds on which the defense of the pardon power as a constitutional matter rests. One is that the president uses the pardon power not to exacerbate injustice, but to, in fact, mete out justice, to correct for failings in the justice system, to show mercy where mercy is uh, justifiably shown. And the second, as a broad political act in the social welfare uh, to provide for national healing, uh, for the opportunity for reconciliation. An example would be uh, the amnesty uh, for those who did not um, serve in the draft, who escaped the draft or during the Vietnam War uh, that uh, Jimmy Carter uh, issued pursuant to his power to grant clemency. And there are other examples of that. Those are the two broad bases upon which the pardon power as a constitutional matter rests. Neither of which say, applies to the recent pardons granted by President Trump. That's correct. I was about to segue to the problem presented by what's happened here and why it is that we take it up in the book as a fit subject for reform. And that is, it is absolutely susceptible to abuse. It can be used to create injustices, exacerbated uh, injustices. It can be used for personally self-interested and politically self-interested purposes. And so the question is, how do you define within constitutional bounds, in other words, so that you're not infringing on a constitutional authority of the president, how do you nonetheless cabinet it in such a way so it doesn't spill over into those kinds of abuses? And the other thing that comes quickly to mind when you think about the possibility of abuses, of course, has to do with the war powers uh, and the commander-in-chief powers. Uh, Gary Wills, not that long ago, wrote a whole book about this. Uh, interested, Jack Goldsmith, in your thoughts about this. I mean, the president also has the nuclear buttons. Uh, there's so much power there to reckon with and so much power that almost screams out for the necessity for reform. The only way really that the president can be in terms of reform uh, approached uh, or ameliorated was through the 25th Amendment or impeachment or re-election. That's about it right now. With regard to war powers, you're right. There are not any really effective enforceable legal constraints. And that fact became very scary during the Trump administration, especially when he was threatened to use nuclear weapons, especially in a seemingly casual and ad hoc way. Uh, um, this is a problem, war powers and presidential irrigation of war powers that long preceded Trump. And other than the nuclear power threats, he really wasn't that much more aggressive than his predecessors. So this is one of those reforms that builds on Trump's case, but it goes back far before it. We have a whole slew of recommendations. With regard to nuclear war powers, the basic idea is the president needs to have the authority to use nuclear weapons in an emergency situa situation. That's key to our defense, and it's key to the deterrence policy. But he shouldn't have the authority to use it in anything beyond an emergency situation, anything beyond an incoming missile or anything beyond what our deterrence policy requires. So we, we propose strict limitations there. 
And then we have a whole slew of reforms on the war powers uh, generally in the conventional context to kind of tighten up the, the now 20-year-old war on terrorism, to tighten up the war powers resolution. But let me add that while some of our reforms we're confident about, we're confident that there would be a bipartisan consensus on war powers, it's going to be much harder because it's a classic dispute between Congress and the president. And this is one of the harder reforms to achieve in the book. Let me read some comments that are coming in. A tweet from Pete. Pete uh, tweets, uh, breathtaking changes. Trump's abuse would never have occurred without Republican support acquiescence. This is not about fecklessness in Congress. It's about GOP-supported propaganda and disinformation, sustaining an alternative reality, keeping the party of stupid in power. Dean writes, the norms and truths we hold to be self-evident have always been vulnerable to the possible election of a president crass and undignified enough to brazenly trample all over them, but nobody ever thought a person like that would be elected. It is now glaringly apparent that these truths and norms need to be changed into laws as well as protocol for even being able to run for president, such as disclosing tax information. And Robert writes, let's be crystal clear of the context here. One party, Republicans now openly reject democracy as a form of government. And Harvey adds, uh, Trump refused to cooperate with any request for congressional subpoenas, using the courts to delay, etc. Could any U.S. citizen play the same game and emerge similarly unscathed? That brings up a whole, I think, uh, raft of different questions. And uh, Bob Bauer, I'm going to go to you on this. You know, there are people being subpoenaed by Congress, and the president was saying simply ignore. You think about Don McGahn and others who were subpoenaed, who simply felt that they had the prerogative of not complying, and there was no teeth in that. The administration took a, a very, very aggressive uh, position about um, <clears throat> the powers of Congress uh, to force uh, senior aides, to compel senior aides uh, to, t to testify and uh, to produce documents. And maybe, as we know, um, that is a matter that you know has been actively litigated. I do want to make one comment um, in reference to what one of the tweets, the content of one of the tweets, and that is when we think about these issues, um, obviously, Trump and those within the Republican Party over the last several years who have been willing to stand behind or at least in some cases be notably silent about most Atlantis claims did not cover itself in glory, to say the least. Totally agree. For a reform program to work, and this is why we have so much historical material in the book, uh, it's very important for uh, everybody to recognize that uh, Trump exploited a situation that has been developing in the presidency for some period of time and there have been although not nearly to the degree not nearly to the degree uh, uh that uh, has been true of the trump administration um have been creating the opportunities for someone like trump to come along and to move if you will these abuses one step two step five steps further and so we advocate for a reform program that can be supported on a bipartisan basis with the understanding that it could make both parties uncomfortable at some point. Each party wants a strong president, particularly where Congress is in divided government, where Congresses are uh, unwilling to support an opposing president's program and often to an absurdly unreasonable degree. Um, there's pressure on the president to produce and there's pressure on presidents to uh, expand their authority dramatically. And they often count on their own political parties to help them do that. So we have to stand back from that and say, what are reforms that both sides can support that could ultimately make each side comfortable because it will limit political precedents in the future on both sides? And again, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith are co-authors of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. Here's Dan, our next caller from Windsor. Dan, you're on the air. 
Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, one pattern I feel I've noticed uh, over the decades is it always seems that Democrats are elected to come in and clean up the mess of Republicans, but um, then the Republicans turn around and wrap themselves in the flag. The questions I wanted to ask quickly are, what legal means does Congress have to investigate and call to account the actions of Trump, how he has violated uh, many of the norms? Um, you know, what can they do? I've heard of some efforts about that. And secondly, um, if the gentleman could comment, what can Democrats do to try to make the message clear of how assaultive uh, this branch of the Republicans has been on the democracy? Thank you for those questions, Stan. To the first question, let me go to you, Jack Goldsmith. What can Congress do short of impeachment? What powers do they really have where the presidency is concerned? But well, I thought the reader, I thought the caller was asking about what could they do after Trump leaves office. I mean, Congress's powers, when it's in the middle of a presidency, are basically they have a whole slew of them: oversight, impeachment, not confirming appointees, not giving the president what he wants on the on appropriations and the like. Um, so there are Congress does have tools if it can get its act together. It has not done a good job of getting its act together in the, in the last several decades, as as the caller pointed out. I think it's very important after Trump is is gone. There are there's a lot that Congress can do in terms of hearings to have former officials come up and in the context of talking about the problems with the Trump presidency and how to reform the Trump presidency, we can learn a lot about what happened and have accountability in that mean through that means. And that might not seem like much, but it's very important to find out as much as we can about what went on inside the Trump presidency. And that is the best way, in my judgment, to do so. Well, the caller also asked Bob Bauer about what Democrats can do. And I would uh, apply that now to the present situation. Uh, President-elect Biden has been talking about the irresponsibility in the transition of the Trump administration, not turning over documents and national security information that he feels and this coming administration feels is vital. Yes, this is a whole new area of uh, irresponsible, uh, actually norm-defying conduct by Donald Trump that has to be added to the reform program. You'll recall uh, it began really uh, with the refusal of the General Services Administrator under tremendous pressure, obviously political pressure from the administration, to not recognize the Biden-Harris victory uh, for a sustained period of time. Uh, and that slowed up at least the formal transition. The Biden-Harris transition continued to you know, do what they needed to do to get ready for office, but without the cooperation of the incoming administration, just an unprecedented refusal uh, to accept the outcome of the election as Donald Trump continued to say uh, that he was cheated and that the election results didn't reflect the true will of the voters. Uh, it is clear that we cannot have uh, the transition uh, hang the formal transition, the government funded full transition, hang on a determination by a political appointee like GSA's current administrator, who plainly was just, you know, under assault politically, uh, not to move on this transition. And this is a problem that really deserves attention even beyond that particular statutory framework for a GSA determination. This is a matter that's going to require uh, some real attention because this simply cannot happen again. It is a real threat. Uh, to the peaceful transition of power and, frankly, uh, to the competent, uh, the careful in the public interest organization of the new government. Again, if you've just joined us, we're talking to the co-authors of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, Bob Bauer, Jack Goldsmith, and here's another caller. Maxwell joins us. Maxwell, welcome. Thank you. Yes, it, it seems clear that uh, our founders, as clever as they were, 
um, didn't get everything perfectly correct in, in the framing of the Constitution and limits on presidential power. Uh, given the political unlikeliness that we can amend the Constitution to correct this, is our democracy fundamentally broken here? It's a big question, uh, Jack Goldsmith. We'll defer to you on that. <laughs> it's a huge question. I think our democracy is... It depends on which aspect you're talking about. I don't think our democracy is fundamentally broken. I mean, in a way, we're going through the most difficult transition in American history. And despite uh, a president, the most powerful person in the world, assaulting it with everything he has, it still seems to be working. And that's really a remarkable accomplishment that I think that we should all be grateful for. As for the framers... um, it's true, the framers, that they couldn't have imagined what the presidency has become. They actually purposefully created a strong presidency, especially from what came before. They couldn't have imagined what, would have, what it would have turned into. And so much power and authority has transferred to the presidency, and it's grown so much. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a problem for democracy that we have a Congress, a serious problem, that we have a Congress that basically has not been able to act much in the last several decades. And we therefore have a president who is basically acting unilaterally across the board, all of which Trump exacerbated by violating these norms. So I wouldn't say that our democracy is healthy right now, but I, I wouldn't say it was irrevocably broken either. Comforting to hear that... It's not irrevocably broken. Um, We'll hear from more of you, our listeners, and we're going to continue our discussion with our co-author guests, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith. Again, their book is called After Trump Reconstructing the Presidency. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about how to reform the presidency in a post-Trump era with Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, co-authors of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. And if you have something you'd like to ask or add to the conversation, you can join us at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Let me read a few emails. Patricia writes, Any president who has been impeached cannot pardon. That's Patricia's notion of what ought to be held back in the way of power. Rich writes, our current and thankfully now ending problem is the result of a majority incompetent electorate. With some exceptions, norms were in control because reasonably normal people were elected in the past. Some good, some not so good, but more normal. In this case, an amazingly large number of people were duped. Could I ask uh, you, Bob Bauer, since you've been a campaign advisor to the Biden administration, uh, to President-elect Joe Biden, uh, you think he's going to push for reform? And can he push for reform? He's certainly noted uh, historically for working across the aisles and being bipartisan. No question uh, that he has been known to work across the aisles, that he believes strongly in bipartisanship, uh, that uh, 
he has also said that he has a deep concern for the health of American governing institutions. I can't say now of how he is going to, uh, to sequence the steps that he takes in office. There are obviously some very significant immediate challenges the country faces with the pandemic and the tremendous social and economic stresses that it's imposed on the American people. So he has a, a large bit of business to, to be done here. Uh, but there is no question that um, he has recognized, and he said this from the beginning of the campaign, the toll that Donald Trump's conduct of the presidency has taken on the nation. And that obviously, you know, brings up for discussion uh, how it is that we can not just sort of restore civility to the tone, bipartisanship to our actions, but take an inventory of the damage done and determine what repairs might be appropriate. And a question for you, Jack Goldsmith, from a listener named Gary, who says Trump regarded the Justice Department as his personal defense team. What would it take to solidify the separation of the Justice Department and the president of the United States? He did view the Justice Department that way. Uh, The first and most important thing it takes is to elect a president who respects those norms and have the president nominate and the Senate confirm an attorney general that respects those norms. And then the president has to follow those norms, and um, we propose a whole bunch of solutions. I mentioned them earlier about how to make those those norms work better. Let me just mention a problem in this area and why it's so hard to make this work. It's hard for Congress to reform this because it all comes under the guise of Article Two, and the Constitution gives the president lots of control over law enforcement and supervision of the executive branch. And that's why almost all of the reforms related to independence of the Justice Department and independence of law enforcement has to come from the So it's a very tricky thing to make those norms work and be sticky. They did work better than people appreciate under Trump. Uh, a lot of things that Trump wanted to happen in the Justice Department did not happen. And we just think all of those things need to be tightened up. Another thing that really needs tightening, and Bob Bauer, I'm going to go to you on this, is uh, the president and the way he interacts with the press and we're not only talking about vindictive punishing of the press, but really the necessity to, in some ways, uh, at least foster amity toward the press. There were times when the president barked and, and uh, went back after press people uh, in ways that were seen as, as really unseemly and beyond all norms. Um, you've been suggesting, I think, uh, you and Professor Goldsmith, the idea of bringing the inspector general and regularizing uh, kind of a due process basis where you could handle or hand out press presses. Uh, talk about that. Certainly. So in the case of the inspector general, it seems to us that there is a role to play for the inspector general to review claims that the president used official power to intimidate or harass members of the press. That, it seems to me, is more than a president simply expressing, I think we agree, Uh, that it's more than a president simply expressing dissatisfaction with his or her coverage. That happens all the time. Presidents are not enamored of unpleasant press. But where it goes beyond that to abuse of power, then it seems to me there ought to be a structured opportunity for the inspector general to look into cases of harassment, to report on that to the Congress, and to determine whether any crimes were committed in the course of those uh, acts of intimidation or harassment. The other issue that uh, you correctly point to is the use of the White House's power over press passes uh, to try to punish uh, enemies and reward friends. There was litigation over that during the Trump administration. There is a regulation that imposes on the White House some due process requirements uh, for granting and revoking press passes. And we argue for uh, reform uh, to make sure that those are structured in a way that provide 
maximum protection for the press and allow for minimum use of that authority, again, uh, to punish reporters that a president um, doesn't happen to like, that a White House finds is writing too much unfavorable coverage. This is tricky, of course, because there are constitutional protections for the president. The president doesn't have to have White House briefings. The president can give interviews to some publications and shut others out altogether. But there are limits uh, that we think can be drawn, both through internal regulation and by providing for those legal protections against intimidation and harassment. And Jack Goldsmith, uh, listener tweets a question here that I think is uh, quite important. The listener says, what will be the role of the courts in these suggested reforms that you're putting forth? And how will they be, uh, how will that be impacted by judges appointed by Trump? It's a very good question. Um, for most of these disputes, the courts don't get involved. Most of them are just purely either internal executive branch matters or matters between Congress and the president. And for complicated reasons, there's no way for the issue to get to court. But on some of these fundamental issues, for example, on the constitutionality, uh, on whether it's constitutional to impose legal restrictions like conflict of interest rules on the president, um, or whether uh, Congress can, in fact, uh, have a subpoena power in certain circumstances against the president. Those are the kind of separation of powers disputes that the courts will ultimately adjudicate if there's a president that resists it. President Biden probably wouldn't resist that, but if there's a president that resists it. And in that circumstance, the courts would matter, and Trump's more conservative court is probably going to be more pro-executive on these issues, so that will be a challenge for these reforms. Well, here's another challenge uh, put forth by a listener named Jennifer. I'll go to you, Bob Bauer. Jennifer wants to know, what are the chances of introducing a mental health exam for all presidential candidates to disqualify people who have confirmed diagnoses of sociopathic or narcissistic personality disorders from running for president? Uh, well, I, I'm not quite sure how to approach the answer to that question. I mean, that's a complicated bit of business, you know, which tests, who administers it. You know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, that that probably uh, has much of a future to it. Uh, but um, I think that the reforms, uh, and by the way, I'm sure there are Republicans who will point to presidents in the past who they thought uh, manifested, you know, signs of, you know, paranoia. And uh, certainly we read that um, there was some of that in the Nixon administration. Uh, some people thought Richard Nixon was struggling with alcoholism and, uh, you know, some substance abuse to help him sleep. And that at the end, when he was under pressure, he was talking to paintings on the wall. Some people uh, talked about or wrote about uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, outsized personality uh, quirks, if you will, and uh, impulses. But I think the key uh, to start with here are institutional reforms that make it possible to contain presidents who start to exhibit you know, sort of questionable impulses, uh, who start to exhibit you know, person extremely undesirable and dangerous personality traits, prevent them from translating them into sort of discretionary political uh, presidential action. Uh, I think you start with this large structural reform. I, 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 it's hard for me to see how uh, we take the mental health testing of presidential candidates to a uh, to a reform discussion anytime soon. Especially since diagnostics often are quite ambiguous and always uh, one Correct. can find, shall we say, counterpoint to any diagnosis from another diagnostician. I'm looking at a question from Janet, and I'll go to you, Jack Goldsmith. Janet wants to know, well, actually makes a suggestion. She says the Constitutional Convention 200 years ago ushered a new experiment. It's time to convene a Convention 2.0 to identify, debate, and fix abuses that have occurred since then. 
Actually, she phrases it as an interrogative. Is it time to bring a convention 2.0? Uh, I don't believe so, but a lot of people do, and I think it's a very fair question. Uh, I'm skeptical for a couple of reasons. It's extremely hard to accomplish. You're talking about, if we're talking about having a new constitution, I think that's practically impossible. If you're talking about major amendments to the constitution in the current environment, I think that's practically impossible. Um, and But here's another danger. If you have a convention like that, believe it or not, you could make things worse. Um, you know, there are lots of forms of government that we could implement, but that would be even worse than the ones we have now. And so in our book, we do not support constitutional, major constitutional reforms like that, precisely because we think they're too hard and they could have self-defeating effects. So, uh, it, but again, a lot of people have said we need something like that, and it's a certainly a plausible position to take. Well, I asked uh, Bob Bowers, since he's an advisor to the Biden uh, presidency, about what likely might happen. And of course, all of this is supposition and guesswork, but I think you point out that about half the reforms, and you have over 50 concrete reform proposals uh, for the presidency, could be put into place pretty soon under Biden. Isn't that correct? Jack well, let me clarify one thing, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to clarify one thing real quickly, which is I'm a, I've been a senior advisor of the Biden campaign. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, just to be clear. So, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm not forecasting uh, specific steps that the president-elect will take once in office. No, I'm sorry, no, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's okay. I don't mean to suggest that uh, there is a crystal ball or tea leaves here, but I think uh, you did point out in the book, uh, you seem to suggest both of you are, you know, uh, are in, in concur, uh, concurrence on this, that um, about half of these reforms could actually move pretty quickly with alacrity through the Biden administration. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So there are internal reforms. Absolutely. And we lay them out uh, particularly, by the way, what uh, as Jack says in our focus on the Department of Justice. There are uh, internal reforms. Uh, some of them would have significant effect, but actually would be fundamentally basic uh, that would be required to restore some confidence or would help significantly to restore confidence in the impartiality of justice and in particular to remove uh, the dangers of, of the department becoming in appearance and, in fact, politicized. And here's Suzanne joining us next. Suzanne, welcome. You're on. Thank you for waiting. Thank you. Um, I agree with uh, one of the callers who said that we need to um, not allow a president who has been impeached to pardon because they let their cronies out. We have seen this with Nixon. We've seen it with Bush. I mean, it's not like this is a first time. This is not precedent the way he's conducting this part of things. And the other thing is we shouldn't leave it to shoulds and oughts because we see how rogue this man was in this office with the power. And if we do not change that, he's only the first Trump. We will get a more cunning uh, someone that's a little more articulate, <laughs> and 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 if we allow them these powers, they're going to continue to do this. And I say now, yes, we are broken. We are broken because we keep pardoning by way of not doing more progressive things to protect democracy in America. Susanna, thank you for those thoughts. In fact, uh, I think the book is... Uh 
kind of a warning against potential demagogues who might take these things farther if they have the opportunity to do so. Uh, I think the book really works on that level. And again, you're trying to provide guardrails and uh, kudos for that. Uh, I'm wondering, though, about something I mentioned earlier. And let me go to you on this, uh, Jack Goldsmith, and that is the one thing you two are not in agreement about is what ought to happen to President Trump after his presidency is uh, completed. There are, them, there are still people like uh, Louis Gomer down in Texas who uh, bringing a lawsuit against Pence and trying to see that this uh, presidency will continue. But the reality is that there's still a debate about whether or not he should be prosecuted and whether or not uh, the rule of law, and I think that's Bob Bauer's position, uh, ought to be enforced against this president once he's out. Now, that may happen in the New York courts. But I'm interested in your point of view, Jack Goldsmith, uh, as a former member of the Republican Party and the Bush administration, why you see this as a slippery slope, why you see it as a danger. Yeah, so I, just a quick point first. I agree with you that the prosecutions that were ongoing against Trump in both New York State and New York Federal Court that concern his pre-presidential behavior, those can and should continue. I'm skeptical about investigations of President Trump for his time in office, and I'll be very brief because I know we're getting short on time, for several reasons. I agree that the rule of law should be enforced against a former president, but I think the hurdles for doing so against Trump are enormous. It's not clear, believe it or not, what crimes he committed and the most likely ones that he committed involving obstruction of justice, face legal hurdles that we actually try to reform in some of our proposals in the book. I fear that the prosecution and investigation would fail, which would be, I think that is the most likely outcome. I think that would be a setback to the rule of law. I think it would keep Trump in the middle and dominating the circus in the press. I think it would take the wind and uh, and time and resources away from the Biden administration and the Justice Department. And finally, I fear that it would, would set a terrible precedent, and I think we're already in this cycle a little bit with the Barr-Durham investigation, set a terrible precedent for having uh, you know transitions of democracy, setting a norm of one administration criminally investigating the prior one. That said, I mean, Bob makes a very strong argument in the book, so I understand the argument on the other side. Yeah, Bob Bauer, you want to give us uh, kind of a brief brief about your argument on the other side? Yeah, my argument on the other side, and I, I think Jack and I agree on some things. We certainly agree that ongoing investigations ought to be pursued. I also think that if uh, wrongful conduct surfaces, that is to say, uh, conduct, uh, potentially criminal conduct committed while in office, uh, evidence of it surfaces uh, hereafter, uh, that it should be pursued. And the reason for that is that we just have to do just a little bit more beyond allowing the continuing, uh, the current investigations to continue to make sure people understand the president is legitimately not above the law. That isn't to say that people bring spurious or politically motivated prosecutions, but if there's evidence of criminal misconduct in office that does surface, it is important to hold the president accountable. The presidency currently cannot be prosecuted uh, while in office. And by norm, we become a little bit nervous. It's not a settled norm, but it's a, a concern and a legitimate concern that we don't want outgoing administra incoming administrations to start suing the presidents of um, outgoing administrations. But we can't then have a situation where they're protected by law while they're in office and they're protected by general expectation when they're out of office. So my view is that, you know, with transparency and uh, you know, rigorous criteria, um, and independence of the Department of Justice, that should that evidence surface, it should be pursued. 
And I'll read a comment from Malcolm who says, in an important way, we should be grateful to Trump. If he had been smarter, he might have gotten away with a lot of this uh, crimes of his and he would have, uh, we could have ended up as a dictatorship. Um, lots of questions that unfortunately we can't get to because of uh, time constraints, but perhaps we can conclude this by um, talking about, well, just how viable uh, some of these uh, over 50 concrete proposals are. I mean, we were talking about the fact that maybe even more than half of them could be put into place uh, with with a good deal of uh, speed by the Biden administration, but they've got to get through a lot of obstacles and a lot of challenges. And um, I just wonder if you were, uh, we've got seconds left here, if you were giving a betting odd here, uh, Jack Goldsmith, Bob Bauer, what would it be? I would say... Uh pretty good odds on about half of the reforms and the others are harder. Bob Bauer, you? I agree with that. I agree with that. I agree with Jack on that. Okay. Uh, we got you in agreement again about something. So thank you both. <laughs> really good to have you both on. Appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Bob Bauer, Jack Goldsmith, their book again is After Trump and we thank you for being with us for this hour of forum. We'll be back with you on the morrow and an hour of forum up ahead with Mina Kim. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, and an hour is repeated in the evening, 10 to 11 p.m. And please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.